Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they can help us to think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can learn more about me or my research on my professional website, jenniferannfrey.com. You can also follow me on social media, on Twitter, at Jen Frey, or on Instagram, at Professor S. Frey. I am very excited to introduce episode 16 of the podcast, titled King Lear and Love's Vision. In this episode, I speak with one of my favorite poet philosophers and just a very wise soul, Professor Troy Jollimore, about how love involves a kind of intellectual perception, which demands the bestowal of patient, loving, and imaginative attention on the valuable qualities of the beloved. We explore this theme of love's vision, or lack thereof, in my favorite Shakespearean tragedy, King Lear. Reading Lear can help us to open our eyes to the fact that we sometimes need to get out of our own way, to put aside our deep insecurities and vices in order to see and love the people who matter to us for who they really are. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Troy Jalamore. Troy is the author of three books of and three books of philosophy, as well as numerous articles, essays, and reviews. He's an award-winning poet, and he teaches philosophy at California State University in Chico. Welcome back, Troy. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I'm super thrilled. Obviously, I always love talking to you. I want to talk about a philosophy book you wrote in 2011 called Love's Vision. It's a wonderful book. Highly recommend. But I guess my question is, well, look, what is vision? or perception have to do with love? And what does love have to do with the moral life? Thinking back to that book, Love's Vision, part of what I'm trying to do in that book, a large part of what I'm trying to do is approach love from a philosophical standpoint in a way that either solves, or maybe we want to say sort of avoids to some degree, some of the standard philosophical problems uh, about love, things that have vexed philosophers for so long. Uh, although maybe I shouldn't say for so long, because especially recent philosophers are the ones that get really worked up by that. But you find it in earlier writing as well. Um, so what are the basic questions about love You know, from a philosophical standpoint? Well, things like, is love subjective or objective? You know, am I, when I love somebody, am I responding to something that's really out there and independent of me? Uh, is love a kind of response to valuable or attractive qualities that are actually in the person and that are objective in some way? Am I really relating to the outside world in that strong sense? Or is it really more subjective? Clearly, it has a subjective component of some sort. There's no question about that. All emotions do, you know. Uh, but many people have thought for various reasons, many philosophers, I'm sure some other people have too, but philosophers especially seem prone to getting into this position where they end up saying, well, it's got to be purely subjective. You know, it can't really be that the things that we value when we love someone are objective in any sense. And they have all sorts of reasons for thinking this. For instance, they say, well, you know, if the qualities that I loved when I loved my wife are objective qualities, then everybody should love my wife, you know, stuff like that. Or 
I, I should be prepared to love somebody else who comes along and has all exactly the same properties as my wife or has those properties, you know, plus a few other ones. So, so they're even better. So I ought to trade up to her, right? It's all those kind of philosophical problems that uh, have convinced many people over the years that we should really give up on this idea, which I think would be a very common sense idea that in loving someone, you're responding to them and something outside yourself and you're valuing, you know, something that is objective in a fairly strong sense. I think the problem goes back to Plato and the symposium. Plato takes the view that love is a response, right? To something that's good, uh, that's objective, that's objective in the strong platonic sense. And I think you know, when you talk about this text with students, like the immediate problem is, well, but I love someone in particular. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that is that part of the worry? Oh, absolutely. And Plato is such a great example because he really bites the bullet on this without even, I, I'm taking Plato's view here. I, I guess we know I shouldn't do this because it's a dialogue and many people speak and we could certainly argue about what Plato himself thinks. But it seems clear, you know, that Plato is more attached than any of the other positions to the position that Socrates outlines towards the end where he talks about the ladder of diatema and so on. And that position really is a strong version of what many of these philosophers I've, I've mentioned object to in the sense that what he ends up saying, so I'll just say Plato for convenience, you know, what Plato ends up saying is, uh, yeah, of course, we we love people. At first, we love them, you know, in their uniqueness and particularity because we're kind of unsophisticated and primitive. Yeah, we love beautiful bodies. Right, that's right. And so, but then, of course, you know, then we realize that what's really lovable is uh, more abstract qualities and qualities of mind and things like that and virtues, etc. So really, of course, what you love is not the person, but the universal qualities that that person instantiates. And that's where I think your, your students start to have that reaction that you described. They say, well, wait a minute. No, I love people. I might love them for qualities uh, that are universalizable in some sense. But now that we see the Plano view, we start to wonder, well, wait, do we even want to say that? Because that starts to seem objectionable. We don't, we don't love that. We love people. And people are very concrete, particular entities. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, but what does vision have to do with any of it? The hope is that the way to solve or, again, avoid a lot of these problems is to notice the common ground between love and perception and notice how much love has in common with perception. Uh, and I lean especially on vision for various reasons. There's other forms of perception, obviously, but vision is kind of the most useful here, at least as an analogy, because what we can say about perception, vision in particular, but really any form of perception is it's subjective again, in some sense, it's not neutral. It's not purely objective. When we perceive things, we don't perceive things from, you know, the neutral uh, view from nowhere, as Nagel says, or, you know, the God's eye point of view. It's, it's always situated. You always see the world from some particular place. And yet we're very comfortable talking about vision uh, as being accurate or inaccurate, or even, in fact, objective or non-objective. Uh, so you can say, for instance, a person who, and I'm thinking a little of Iris Murdoch here, right, in some of her discussions, that a very narcissistic person he might be quite unable to see somebody else who's nearby because he's so paranoid and he's so afraid of thinking, you know, well, anything that they do, even genuinely nice things, he's going to find some hidden agenda and then he's going to project something onto them beneath the surface and think, oh, really, they're just doing this or that, you know. This kind of person would be entirely unable to actually see the people around him because of their own preoccupations. 
Whereas we can imagine somebody with more moral wisdom or more objectivity who can actually open themselves up to another person and see what's really going on there. Even somebody who at first maybe they didn't like or had some issues with or whatever. So visions being situated and being perspectival in that way doesn't at all prevent us from thinking of it as something that can be more or less objective. And so then I try to develop an account of love that goes on similar lines. It's clearly subjective in some ways. It's perspectival. The fact that I love my wife doesn't mean that you have to love my wife or anyone else does and so on. And yet I still think that in loving people, at least when it's going well, I think that in loving people, we are responding to real qualities that they have and we're actually seeing them as they are. Well, I wonder if there's a, any kind of analogy here between the sort of moral perception that you're talking about and... Um what Aristotle called practical wisdom. So practical mm. wisdom is always of particulars. It's always mm -hmm. perspectival. It's always in a certain situation from a certain perspective at a certain time, which is why the practically wise thing to do in one situation doesn't necessarily universalize. Right. Um, and, but also, and this is the point that's like so crucial for Aristotle, um, you can't be practically wise. That is to say, you cannot make the right judgment in the situation without um, proper dispositions, proper moral dispositions, what he calls moral yes. virtues. So if you don't have um, the right sorts of desires and reactions, um, if your emotional life isn't well regulated according to virtue, um, you're just simply not going to see the world clearly. Your judgment itself depends on your moral condition. So is that is that kind of something like what you mean by vision or moral perception? Oh, yes, very much so. And I think that some contemporary philosophers, uh, Maggie Little would be a good example, people working often uh, in, in feminist epistemology are connected to that anyway. Uh, and I think you find this in Murdoch as well, to some degree. They have a view very much like this, where they say, look... Perception is not neutral again. There's a sense of calling it objective being more or less accurate, but it's not neutral in that it is always dependent on emotional reactions and it is always dependent on a, a kind of character, which, as you say, you know, Aristotle would spell out very clearly in terms of moral virtues. And I, I think there's something very right about that. A person without compassion, for instance, couldn't really see certain aspects of the world accurately, they would never understand them, they would completely miss them. Uh, and maybe there's different aspects of the world that might be true. First of all, maybe most obviously, a person who themselves just had no capacity for compassion would never be able to understand the actions of compassionate people. And so they would always sort of missee those actions and misinterpret them as being something else. But beyond that, I think we can also say that they, and I'm, I'm thinking now a little says something like this, John McDowell, right, says some things like this, that the person without compassion is going to misunderstand the moral shape of a situation. And so they're going to miss some situations where uh, a moral response is called for. I think the phrase shape of a situation is Jonathan Dancy's, right? You're going to miss that shape of a situation and you're going to see it wrongly. And, and when people like Dancy and McDowell say that, they mean it quite literally. You know, there really is something that you're missing and misperceiving when you lack that virtue and you're looking at these, uh, these moral situations that call on us for action. But I think there must be some important difference between being able to respond to the morally salient features of a situation and then being able, and so that requires a certain kind of vision. Okay, I understand this. 
But um, I think the thing in your book that you're particularly focused on uh, that I, that I want to try to understand is the way that you love a particular person and picking up on the right features of the person as sort of central to what it is to love them properly. So you write, love as a response to the beloved's valuable characteristics also has some features of bestowal. What is bestowed, however, is not the value itself. Again, presumably that was there all along, but rather the sort of close, generous, and imaginative attention that allows valuable features of this sort to fully reveal themselves. So I was really struck by this um, connection that you draw in the book between loving someone and having the ability to sort of pay attention um, to what is valuable in them. And so I wanted you to just say a little bit more about that and also ask, you know, on your account, does it anymore have anything to do with responding to the beautiful the way it does with Plato? Or do you just want to take it in a totally different direction? Mm, oh boy, that last part gets us into some tricky territory. So let me work up to that and then we'll see what I have to say about that. But to start with the bestowal thing, this would be my way or a large part of my way of trying to accommodate that intuition that there is a strongly subjective element to love, even though, you know, I'm trying to defend or rehabilitate this common sense idea, which I think is basically right, that love is objective and that we're responding to objective properties and so on. Still, there is something different about love. Like I've been saying, you know, I, I love my wife and I don't expect that everyone will or should love my wife. Uh, so it does seem different from moral virtue because it's pretty plausible to think that where there's moral reasons or a moral requirement, everyone is kind of called on to act on those. Uh, where there's a moral need, everyone should step in and respond. And, you know, subject to ability, you know, and this and that, so on. That seems quite different from love. And the bestowal vocabulary was not introduced by me, right? Philosophers have used it in the past. Uh, it may have been Irving Singer who introduced it. He certainly made it quite central. Uh, Singer uses bestowal as, you know, sort of the subjectivist or anti-rationalist side of uh, philosophy of love, which he tends to favor. He thinks on the whole that when we love somebody, the value that we're responding to is something we actually bestow on them. It's not really out there in them. We are making them important to us by loving them. So even though it can seem like, and this is a very Humean sort of thought in a way, right? You know, Hume talks about having these values that we project onto things and then react to them as if we find them there. But in fact, they're coming from us, really. So that's how a lot of people have seen uh, love, you know, that, and a lot of people have been willing to see other values, like moral values, not in this way, because again, they're universal, so there's no problem. But love looks so subjectivist that they think, well, no, you know, that really is not an objective value. We project it onto people in some way, but then we feel as if, you know, we are sort of encountering it in them. And so it strikes us as objective, but really it's not. And so what I try to argue in the book is really going on is that it's not really value that is being bestowed. There is a sense, of course, in which we're bestowing a kind of importance. In loving someone, they become important to me, obviously. And so there's some sense in which I'm making them important to me. But I think it's a mistake to, to think that way about value in general here. The important values that we're responding to really are in them. It's things that they have. Again, if we're seeing them accurately. Uh, I love someone because they're a, a compassionate, wonderful person who makes the world a better place. And they're funny and they're fun to be with, right? And all the things we could list that are, you know, their virtues of various sorts. I think when we see accurately, at least that person really has those things. So we are responding to objective value. But in order to see them accurately, we have to be open and receptive to them to begin with. 
Because again, it's hard, right? Something Murdoch is always reminding us of. We're narcissists. We're poor at seeing things. It's hard to see people as they really are. So it's hard to open your eyes and actually see what's great about them and really appreciate it. And so doing that involves this kind of active attention. And what, what I refer to in that book, you know, is this bestowal of attentive vision, uh, and which in large part, and I don't know if I say this in the book as much as I, sh as I should, but in, in large part, as Murdoch would say, it's a matter of simply sort of getting out of your own way, you know, opening your eyes and really not projecting again, doing in a way the opposite of what uh, Singer says, right? We're projecting onto them. No, you got to stop projecting onto people if you want to see them as they really are. And I think that ideally that's what love involves, seeing somebody as they really are, which involves seeing what's wonderful about them. And also, I think, acknowledging what's not so great about them. I think that accurate vision is important here. But on the whole, at least if it's somebody you love, the good stuff is going to outweigh the bad stuff or be more important than it. And so you end up, you know, willing to forgive the bad stuff or help them, you know, work to change it, right? Whatever account of it that we come to in the end for dealing with that bad stuff. There is this phenomenon, very uh, common, of just falling in love, right? Where you're sort of struck <laughs> blind and you weren't looking for it. You weren't right. out looking for the value. You weren't hoping to fall in love. In fact, falling in love um, can, depending on your circumstances, pretty much mess up your life. You know, what, what, what's happening there, right? When you're just struck. I mean, I think for somebody like Plato, you know, it, it is what you're struck by is something in them that you see as beautiful, but you weren't looking for it. It's like a receptive thing. Well, there's so much to say about that. So I'll try to keep this brief. Uh, but the first thing I would say is that on my view, love is always a receptive thing and it's not necessarily the case that you're looking for it. I think there can be times in our life when we're looking for love and so on, but I'm not sure that makes it more likely that it's going to happen. Uh, love has to be a matter of receptivity because again, it's, uh, it's accurately perceiving. It's opening yourself to someone and getting your own projections and fears and all that stuff out of the way. So that's always the case. But I do think there's some mysterious stuff going on with the kind of uh, falling in love and infatuation and the, the sudden, what's the great Italian phrase for it? You know, the bolt from the heavens or something that they say, uh, the, the thing that sort of, as you say, can mess up your life. Um, one thing to say about the messing up your life thing, I think would be that in a sense, that's separate from love in the sense that love is hard to manage. And so we set up all these relationships and rules and institutions and, and customs and so on to try to sort of keep it in line to a degree, because otherwise it would be simply unmanageable. You know, in the book, you talk about there being a connection between really seeing the beloved, you know, the person that you love and seeing the world. And I wasn't sure if that was the place where, you know, beauty and value came in or or what? But I guess I just wanted you to say a little bit more about that before we get into the lyre. Right. Yeah. I mean, the connection between seeing the beloved and seeing the world, I guess I think there's at least a couple kinds of connection. And the first one is simply the obvious one that almost goes without saying, which is the beloved is part of the world. And so when you really come to see one person, you're learning to see part of the world clearly and better than you could before. That's obvious, but I think it is important. But beyond that, I, I make some claims, especially toward the end of the book, the final chapters about love and morality. And one of the things that I say there, maybe one of the more contentious claims, I, I guess the whole book's pretty contentious. A lot of people have told me they disagree with it, so I shouldn't say that. Um, but in the last chapter about love and morality, one thing I say is 
I make the following claim that at least for most of us, and maybe there are some people for whom this isn't true, but for most of us, I think that to really attain a certain level of, of moral wisdom, we do have to love somebody because our knowledge of why other people really matter and how much they matter really has to come from that direct experience of somebody else's value in an individual way. There's no general set of truths or general or universal experience that could give it to you. And so that what I kind of imagine happening, uh, it is a little bit in a way like Plato's uh, ladder from the symposium again, that you come to really love somebody and through that have an experience of human value through the lens of that one particular person. And then in some way that gets extended so that you then, you know, intellectually in part, at least realize, well, look, everybody's as real and significant as this one person. So the kind of value that I see them having, uh, everybody else has too. And that leaves us with the very difficult problem of figuring out how to live a life that's consistent and compatible with that. Because I think emotionally, we're not really capable of extending that love to everyone. There's senses in which we can, but not in the substantial sense. I'm never going to feel about 7 billion people the way I feel about my wife. So I don't think we're capable of it. It's probably good we're not capable of it, as you say. But intellectually, we do, if we care about morality at all. And I think that loving, at least in general, tends to make us uh, care somewhat about it because of this. We then have to try to figure out how to implement that practically, right? What does it mean to live with a, practically speaking, with a recognition of the fact that even though I love my wife more and value her more and she's more important and I'm going to put her first, et cetera, that on a principled level, you know, on that hypothetical view from nowhere again, everyone matters that much. Right? How do we do that? And of course, that's so much of what ethical philosophy is all about. And, and then, and finally, just to add one more quick thing, because I'm, I'm dancing around the question of beauty without hey, addressing totally it, but you no, keep bringing I'm it up. <laughs> The very quick thing I'll say about that, and I do discuss it somewhat more in the book, is that this goes back to the bestowing thing again, bestowing a kind of warm, receptive, open, compassionate vision on somebody, which I take to be so closely linked to love. That is often prompted by a perception of beauty, especially in the case of romantic love, but in other kinds of love as well. You see what's beautiful about somebody to some degree, and that makes you get involved with them and start to see them that way to want to love them, to start to love them and so on. But then I think what love does and what vision love, it's like a feedback loop in a way. The more you do that, the more you can see what's beautiful about them, including the beautiful things that aren't so readily apparent. You know, that person on the subway that you see that's very physically attractive, you immediately see the kind of on the superficial level what's beautiful about them. But then if you got to know them, maybe you'd get to know their personality, you'd get to know their situation, know about their life, how they treat their parents, you know what they're like with their friends and what they're doing in the world to make the world a better place and so on. And you see all these facets that are also in their own way beautiful, but you're not going to see it just by seeing someone on a subway platform. You have to get to know somebody. That you can also learn that somebody isn't beautiful, you know, or only very superficially beautiful. Um, but then also, you know, one thing that happens that Alexander Nehemas talks about, and I think is so important, is that somebody who you're attracted to for other reasons and who initially maybe you don't see as physically attractive comes to be physically attractive. You learn to see them in a different way, and you see that actually, you know, they, they're 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 very ordinary sort of looking person, unless you look closely, the kind of thing you can easily miss or take for granted. But in fact, and I think we've all had this experience, somebody you've known, never thought of them as that attractive, and then something happens. And as you were saying, is suddenly it's different. You wake up one day and, oh, it's different. That person's really attractive. I never saw it before. You know, How could I not see it? So there's a kind of learning to see as beautiful that goes on in love as well. Okay. So we're, when we yeah. talked about doing another episode, you were like, hey, I want to do King Lear. 
And I'm like, that's great. Um, King Lear is uh, pretty dark and wild and crazy. <laughs> so I guess my first question is, you know, why, why Lear? Why did you want to talk about Lear? Yeah, that's a great question. It is so dark and wild and crazy. I have to admit, more so than I had remembered when I went back to read it again. I was kind of blown away. I thought, wow, this is so, not only so dark, which is obvious, but also so, well, you said crazy, so irrational in a way. People's behavior. I mean, Lear himself, the central figure of the play, spends much of the play being insane. And it's questionable whether he ever really comes out of it, in fact. Uh, and his, his very first act is an irrational act, which sets the whole play in motion. I was very struck by most of Shakespeare's plays, including his tragedies, have some sort of consoling element, or there's some sense at the end, even though many people have died, that you know maybe Hamlet is sort of an exception too, but the action of Hamlet is somewhat more rational, I think. But in most of the plays, you get to the end and there's some sense that the social order has been restored. And yes, we've been through hard times and things are terrible. We've gotten a glimpse of the abyss, but we're past that now, at least temporarily. And we're going to hold things together for a while. And there's some suggestion of that at the end of Lear, but it's very, very small. Uh, you know, if somebody well, is restored yeah. to become king and so on, but... Hmm? I mean, I think the end is... I mean, one of the final lines you know, of the play goes to Edgar. Mm -hmm. And what did he say? He says, the weight of this sad time, we must obey. But that just sort of leaves you with, right? I mean, that just leaves you with the suffering and telling you, you know, you have to obey it. You can't run away from it. You have to, uh, I mean, whatever it means to, to obey suffering. It's a very dark tragedy. It's very wild. There's a lot of completely irrational, unmotivated behavior. Even the weather is wild, you know? It's, it's like one big storm. That's right. And it's it's very much a play. This is part of the romantic aspect of the play in which the outside world just mirrors the inner states of these characters. And, and that happens in a lot of these plays, but I think in this one to a much greater degree. So why Lear? Is Lear a play about love? I think so. I think it's a play about a lot of things, but certainly I think love is central. And to me, the entire play fascinates, but in particular, that opening scene, which sets everything in motion again, is so fascinating to me. Uh, I, I'm biased. I'm a philosopher of love, so I'm very interested in this. But this opening scene, so I, I should quickly describe it a little bit, you know, in case nobody yes. or nobody, somebody doesn't remember exactly what happens, but... It begins, there's a little bit of business at first with Edmund and Gloucester and so on and sort of introducing them and they become important later. But then the main action begins with Lear's entrance and he's king, but he's sort of done with being king. So he wants to get out of it. He wants to give away his lands, give away his power, and he's going to divide up his country, which of course is never a good idea, right? Politically speaking, you're always asking for trouble when you divide up a country. And the initial plan is he's going to spread it uh, equally among his three daughters. Uh, except that he says this thing where, you know, well, it's not quite equal, perhaps, because maybe one parcel is a little better than the rest, because I'm going to give it to the one who loves me most. And so then he demands that they make speeches to prove how much they love him, so that then he can divvy up the land appropriately. So it's a very odd thing for him to even begin the play by doing. And of course, as we know, this is the initiating action from which all these terrible things then spring forth. Uh, it's, it's a tragedy because this just leads to tragedy, as, as one might expect. I mean, why did he do that? 
Yeah, this is a great question. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said about it. I would think, first of all, from the perspective of love, because of course, the, what we go on together I and mean, think about how this is set up again, we're going to hear speeches about love now. And I think that the three speeches of the three daughters, they're not just descriptions of how they feel. They're sort of put in those terms in a way, but they're also really philosophical statements about love. They're, they're statements about, here's my theory of what love should be and how it should work. And Cordelia's is not like the other two, which is what gets her into trouble, of course. Uh, so the play starts out, I think, with what I consider to be a, a, almost a platonic dialogue about love. And in fact, I, I feel like there's really two platonic dialogues that are being invoked here. And Shakespeare read Plato, so I, I always have felt like he had two dialogues in mind. And one would be the symposium, which is a set of speeches about love. And then the other one would be uh, the apology, because Cordelia's behavior here is so much like Socrates' behavior in Plato's apology, where he's on trial and this whole thing is set up like a trial. Uh, he's going to speak his mind. He knows bad things might come of it if he tells the truth and says what he thinks, but he's going to do it anyway, because that's who he is. And in fact, in this little opening scene, uh, we, we have Cordelia speaking to herself at some point. She's the third one to speak. And when she realizes what's going on, she's kind of horrified. And she says to herself, but of course the audience overhears, you know, her speaking to herself, oh my gosh, what's Cordelia going to say? I, I can't do this. You know, he's set up this thing that my sisters are willing to play along with. And so they're going to tell him what he wants to hear. They're going to flatter him and say, oh, my God, I love you and nobody else. I love you as much as anything in the world, blah, blah, blah. And I can't say that because I know that's not true. Not that I don't love my father, but Goneril and Regan, her sisters, get up and they say these absurd things that I don't love anybody else. I only love you. All of my love goes to you. That's how much you're more important to me than life, et cetera, you know. And Cordelia says very sensibly. So first of all, she kind of says, well, I'm just not going to play this game. Right. This this game has been set up so I can't win it. I have nothing to say that you want to hear. Now, this great thing happens when you read this scene, which is that it's a wonderful example of uh, a father and a daughter misunderstanding each other very badly. And this goes back to what we talked about with love earlier and Murdoch and so on. Lear is so narcissistic and so insecure. And this is part of the answer to the question of why he does this to begin with, right? So we can come back to that. But he's looking for this kind of reassurance. He's so afraid that he's not loved. Or what he's really afraid of maybe is he's only loved as king. But once he stops being king, his daughters are not going to love him anymore. And so he sets up this as a test to reassure himself that, in fact, they will. So Cordelia knows what she's supposed to say. But she doesn't want to say, as her sisters have said, I love you so much, I can't love anyone else. Because as she very sensibly says, well, you know, look, Dad, I know you're mishearing me. You don't get what I'm saying. All I'm saying is my sisters are married. Apparently, they don't love their husbands because they've said they love only you. Someday I'm going to get married. And as she says, I expect half my love to go with him. Half of it goes to you. Half of my love is a lot of love. It's appropriate, right? I love you according to my bond, as she says. The appropriate sort of love is you love your father and you love your husband, and there's room for both of them, and any rational person is perfectly fine with that. It's a very adolescent kind of absolutist way of thinking to think, well, if this person loves somebody else, they can't really love me. It's got to be all or nothing. But Lear, sadly, and what we don't get, of course, because this is where the play starts, is any kind of backstory about why this is, right? What has happened to Lear to make him flawed in this way? We don't really know. But what we do know is he begins the play as a person who is like an adolescent with this absolutist sort of view, 
uh, is like an adolescent also in that he's extremely insecure. And so really going along the lines of what we've been talking about, he's unable really to love them. He can't love Cordelia because he, he can't see who she is, which is very sad, I think. I think I wonder what you think, but I think he has a kind of fragile masculinity. Yes. He's sort of like insecure in all of his masculine roles of authority, like king, father. Um, even he's got like this band of knights. <laughs> problem. You know, he's, he's, I mean, he's sort of, um, I mean, he just seems to have this kind of fragile masculinity and he brings it up. Like sometimes yes. he cries <laughs> and he blames his daughters. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, oh. you're making me like a woman. <laughs> that's right. That's such a wonderful bit when he does that. And, and to go back to the band of knights for just a second, there's so many ironies here. One of the great ironies is that he starts off the play. It, his state of motive, stated motive for doing this is, as he says, you know, I want to divest myself of my property so I can crawl unburdened towards death which is a lovely phrase, first of all, and very interesting. And it suggests a certain thing about self-knowledge that I want to come back to as well, because I think it's quite interesting. But Lear himself, he gives that as his motive, but doesn't really stick to it because, of course, we learn very quickly. He's got a hundred knights he's going to keep with him. He's not crawling on burden towards death at all. Mm -hmm. And so when he gives everything away so that now he soon becomes dependent on his daughters and they have to house him because he's got nowhere to go, he has literally given everything away. He mm -hmm. says to his daughters, okay, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow night. I'm bringing my hundred knights. Well, that's really inconvenient, of course. So the other two sisters, you know, they, they soon reveal themselves to be pretty awful, evil people. But there's a certain degree, at least for a while in the play, I think where you feel a little sympathy with them. This guy's coming, their father's coming to visit, bringing a hundred people with him. And apparently these knights are not very well behaved. They're quite rowdy and disorderly. But yeah, it's quite a large retinue that he brings with him. And I think the other bit of compassion or sympathy we might feel for the two sisters, which doesn't last very long, but it's there in the beginning, is related to uh, Lear's insecurity because he's so fearful. And time and again through this play, but especially at the beginning in this trial scene that kind of opens it, we see that it's his fear of not being loved that really is driving him and preventing him again from seeing people for who they are. He can't see Cordelia and what she's really saying, which is all very intelligent and sensible. He can't see what is perfectly obvious to everyone that Reagan and Goneril are just flattering him and they don't mean what they say and it doesn't even make sense. But this fear prevents them. And then we soon learn after he leaves the stage and everyone else and the sisters talk to each other, they're also afraid because the first thing they say to each other is, what are we going to do about our father? He's crazy. We don't know. You know, we're in this bad situation now. We've got to take care of this quickly. We've got to get him to get rid of all the knights. We've got to get him to get rid of all the remaining power that he has so that he's at our mercy. Because otherwise, look at how rash he is. Look at what he did to Cordelia. He loves her the most. He could turn on us in a heartbeat. So we've got to subdue him before he comes after us. And to a degree, you know, that's kind of rational given his behavior, but it's also coming out of fear again. Fear defeats love in this play again and again. That's what we see sort of over and over. And the progress of Lear in the play, if we think there is progress, is towards overcoming that fear by essentially giving into it and passing through madness. And then eventually coming out the other side, hopefully to where he can see things accurately which to some degree he seems to, but I think it's arguable, you know, how much he really does and how much, because even at the end, he still seems somewhat delusional. Cordelia is clearly dead. He says so himself. And yet his last words seem to suggest that he think maybe she's still alive. Oh, look, you know, her eyelids moving. Look, I can see she's breathing and so on. So it's a very sort of ambivalent ending in that sense, in terms of does Lear actually make any progress towards being able to see Cordelia and see the world or not? 
Right. I think one of the uh, most vexed questions, sort of critical interpretive questions about the play is the nature of the suffering. Is the suffering kind of meaningless? So there's there's that reading of Lear yeah. in which Shakespeare looks a lot like Beckett and it's just yes. you know, <laughs> it's a meaningless universe and um, there's just cruelty and suffering and it's all absurd. Um, but then there's another strand of, of, of interpretive line which takes the, the suffering to be redemptive in some sense, or at least um, the point of the suffering. I mean, you know, this, it's a tragedy. Um, and so like, like a lot of tragedies, you know, there's a lot of appeal to the gods and sort of yes. like what, what role do the gods have in all of this? Um, and Lear is almost, I say almost because of course we know that Lear, unlike Job is not a good man, <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, but you know, he, he, he's sort of like a, a Job like figure in that, yes. you know, he's just being relentlessly destroyed. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard not to feel sorry for him. And also, you know, it's hard not to raise this question. I mean, it's impossible not to raise the question. Well, what is the point of all this? <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and so I, I wonder what you think about, um, the suffering in this tragedy. Is it, is it meant to be redemptive and teach a moral lesson? Is it a, is it a purifying purgatorial sort of thing? Is it meaningless? What's going on there? Yeah, that's a great and fascinating set of questions. I would say, first of all, I, I'm very sympathetic to the meaningless Beckett reading of the play, although I don't think that's the final word on it. Uh, certainly the fear of meaningless has, meaninglessness has to be very significant here because it seems to be part of what's driving Lear. And even in this opening desire to divest himself of everything and crawl unburdened towards death, part of the point of that for Lear seems to be to achieve a kind of self-knowledge and to all his life he's been king. And so there's a sense in which I think Lear thinks he's never really gotten to know himself because he only knows Lear as king. And what he's wondering from the very beginning of the play is, who is Lear as Lear? Who is Lear just as a man, not as a king? Take all that stuff away and just see him as a man. He doesn't really know who he is. It's an identity crisis, essentially. You know, to the, to the redemptive question, I, I, I do tend to think there's at least some moral lesson here. I don't know that that's the main reason of the play, but I, I do think that Lear is so flawed at the beginning and that it's so clear in some ways what his flaws are, that there is a kind of lesson to be learned. I, I think there's, and maybe this is really me projecting more onto the play, but I feel like there's an Iris Murdoch type lesson to be learned. Like, don't father like this, don't parent like this. Listen to what your children are saying, get past your insecurity about whether they love you or not, and relate to your children as actual human beings. Uh, you know, Lear comes into that initial uh, scene again, the, the trial scene, as I call it, with a sort of a script in his head. And he expects his daughters to go along with it. And when one daughter refuses to, he just turns on her instead of being the good parent who would say, let me listen really to what you're saying. Let me, let me really take seriously the possibility you've got something to say that I should be receptive to. So I think those flaws are so apparent that at least looking at the opening scene, there are clear moral lessons. Past the opening scene, I'm not so sure there are as much for moral lessons. I mean, 
people's bad behavior is so bad and people's irrational behavior just so irrational that I'm not sure how much there is to be learned in moral terms. Um, and I think that part of the reason the play strikes us as being so powerful goes back to that Beckett thing again, that not that it's conclusive, I think. I don't know at the end. I think we're not supposed to know exactly how to read it. But I think that the fact that it's open to that reading, unlike most plays of the time and unlike many of Shakespeare's other plays, the fact that it invites a kind of a reading according to which it is truly a nihilistic piece of work. It mm -hmm. truly is saying, you know, to go to the famous line from Macbeth, right? Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's mm -hmm. very much a description of much of the action of King Lear. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we close the play and think to ourselves, I can't really conclusively say that that's not the universe that's being depicted here, mm -hmm. puts it in a special class, I think. Uh, now, again, there, there's, other, there's a gesture towards social reconciliation and so on at the end. There's the fact that Lear's flaws to some degree are apparent and avoidable. And so there are perhaps lessons to be learned in that way. There is Cordelia as a picture of a kind of virtue. So I don't think it's purely nihilistic, but I think that the struggle between the moral universe, which we kind of create for ourselves and try to live within, and, and then that nihilism that's always lurking beneath and that Lear seems to sense and he has such terror of, that's a very real struggle in this play and it, much more bleakly or dramatically than in many other plays. Well, one thing that's really striking to me, and I think, you know, part of it was that I was reading your book first um, and I was thinking about, you know, love and vision and all this stuff. But what really leapt off the page reading this, um, I actually reread this last night. <laughs> um, it's just the imagery of the eyes um, and the activity of looking is everywhere, especially with respect to Lear. And in fact, just before he dies, what is the last thing Lear says? He says, look there, look there, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's looking desperately for evidence that Cordelia is still alive. And yes, his last words are, look there, look there. Yeah, he's talking to Edgar and he says, he asks him, do you see this? Look on her, look her lips, look there, look there. And he dies. And so I guess when I was reading that, I'm like, does he finally see Cordelia as she is and he's trying to show it to someone else um or is he just as deluded as he was in the beginning but now in a different way in the beginning he was deluded he couldn't see reality because of his insecurity um mm -hmm. and his pride and now at the end he can't see reality um because of his overwhelming you know sadness and or maybe it's just left totally ambiguous. I really think it is. I think it's part of Shakespeare's genius here that, again, he leaves the ending of the play so ambivalent so that we can't know whether Lear has recovered or not. It, there is the one, both readings are present and we can't decide between them. There's the reading according to which what Lear has to do, the test for him set by the play, which he passes, is to learn to see his daughter, which he fails miserably at the beginning. And so he goes through everything and finally at the end comes to the point where he can open his eyes and see people for who they are and in particular really see Cordelia. And there is this moment just before the end, it's a couple of pages before, where her dead body has been brought in and she's, he says, he's despairing. He says, she's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. She's dead as earth. So he's, he grasps it here. He acknowledges it, right? Here is Lear in touch with reality the most painful reality you can imagine. And yet he's able not only to face it, but put it in words even, which is an amazing accomplishment. But then it is like he reverts. He goes back, he immediately starts looking closer to see if in fact she's still alive. 
And at the end, he seems to be suffering from these delusions and fantasies that she is still alive. So I, he's flip-flopping even in the final, literally the final pages of the play. And I think that Shakespeare is leaving it open in this way. Are we supposed to read this as a kind of progress narrative in a sense? Or are we supposed to think that Lear has been utterly defeated? He fails the test that's been set for him. He never learns to see his daughter accurately, which is so sad because it was that failure that led to everything to begin with. You know, regardless of what we want to say about Lear, um, maybe he came to some sort of uh, self-knowledge and and some sort of clear picture of his daughter. Maybe he was finally able to see her or maybe he wasn't. Um, but it does really seem clear that Shakespeare is trying to say something about Lear's vision. I mean, just the overwhelming uh, number of times he refers to his eyes, his vision, his act of yes. seeing or not seeing. And so there's this question about Lear's suffering and whether it was redemptive. And um, maybe it's just totally ambiguous how we settle that question, but there's a larger question because the play does not end with Lear dying. Um, you know, the last word goes to Edgar. There must be some significance to the fact that the final thing that Edgar says to us is the weight of this sadness, we must obey. Now, if mm -hmm. the sadness is meaningless, there's nothing that it is to obey something unintelligible. You can only <laughs> obey a rule or a command or something that's intelligible to you, such that it makes right. sense for you to obey it. It just strikes me that even if Lear was unable to learn from his suffering the, maybe, the way that maybe he was supposed to, we still must obey it, right? Right. Or there's some, yes. there's some sort of sense to be made of that. And I just wonder if that's evidence against the existential theater of the absurd <laughs> right yeah i think if nothing else edgar is a character who doesn't totally give into that view and and this is a a play of competing worldviews among many other things and edgar i mean we should mention we haven't even brought up i think except very quickly the subplot but of course the subplot with edgar and gloucester his father and, and his evil brother edmund is very significant as kind of a parallel to the main plot, also involving betrayal, also involving children turning against their uh, parents and so on. And to take it back to what you were saying about the frequency of eyes as a symbol and all that, uh, of course, the sort of you know dramatic high point of that subplot is the terrible moment where Gloucester is taken to the dungeon and his eyes are gouged out. Mm -hmm. So and that's something that really, you know, it's a great question of how to act that out, of course, on stage. Uh, but it's something that tends to stay with the audience and even stay with the reader just because of the horror of it. And in a way, that moment is kind of emblematic of this, the nihilistic horror of the whole uh, play and the universe that it's depicting because the symbolism is crazy. Uh, you know, Stanley Cavell wrote about this play. He has a wonderful essay about it, very complex. And uh, it's the something of love, a reading of King Lear, I think, but I can't remember the what of love. But he makes it very much about shame. It's, it's a, a very Freudian uh, influence reading. And he makes it very much about shame. And he says that Gloucester has to be gl uh, blinded by, uh, by Regan uh, and Cornwall because they can't stand to be seen as evil people. They can't stand for a virtuous person to be able to see them and see what they're doing. And so that's the symbolic 
uh, import of taking his eyes out, which of course connects wonderfully with the idea of Lear not being able to see Cordelia and you know all this other thematic stuff going on with being able to see and not being able to see. But now I'm looking at this last page and these last lines. And so, so shortly before Edgar speaks, Albany says, bear them from hence, our present business is general woe which kind of echoes the, the sadness, the sad times that Edgar's going to talk about. And then Edgar's lines are a response to what Kent says. So he sort of invites Kent to stay around and help out. And Kent says, he's got to go, right? I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no. And so then I'm wondering, and I've been wondering just how to read these lines of Edgar's, right? The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. So one reading would be, if he's responding directly to Kent, he's saying, this is what you're doing and it's good. It's what we need to do. You ought to say, you know, your duty says stay here, but you're saying, no, I feel I must do this and we should all do what we most strongly feel is true, even if it's not appropriate. And if we project that back onto, you know, the Cordelia stuff at the beginning, that's what Cordelia says. She knows in some sense she ought to just speak as her sisters have. She ought to give a little bullshit speech about how much she loves Lear, this and that. She knows that that'll end well, you know, et cetera. But that's not her nature. She can't do it. Like Socrates in the Apology again, she has to say what she feels. And so maybe, but this is only one reading among many possible ones, right? It's a very ambiguous line. But maybe Edgar is reinforcing the idea that what we do learn from this play, we learn from Cordelia's behavior. She is an honest person with integrity. She tries to speak honestly. Uh, she doesn't give in to the temptation that her sisters do to uh, flatter the person in order to get what she wants. But of course, the irony is, you know, the claim can't be if you do that, you'll end well, because of course, all three sisters end up dead. Right. So it's not as if there's some sort of conventionally delivered lesson here, a morality play where the people who do what they're supposed to do uh, prosper and the rest end up suffering for it. Well, you know, just to underscore your point about this subplot, in a way, uh, King Lear is also a play about power and property and and uh, yes. who who is going to to have the power. There seems to be some kind of sense here. And I think you're exactly right that the final words of Edgar are referring back to Cordelia. I think Cordelia is one of the few exemplars of a, of a virtuous mm -hmm. good person. And, you know, there, there seems to be some sort of message here about the, um, um, or the problem <laughs> of just going after power and not realizing that if you don't actually have the character and the vision to exercise that power well, power in and of itself can't be, right? Uh, the thing you should, you should really love or the thing that's really valuable. Um, power is good, sure. It's like money. It's, um, it lets you do stuff because the, the real question is, well, for what are you going to use your power, right? For what are you going to use your wealth, et cetera? That's right. And that question seems to be a question that neither Lear nor his two elder daughters have given any thought to. It's just taken for granted. The one motive, again, that they do seem to have for wanting power, and then later on, ironically, well, at the beginning of the play, but later in his life, the one motive Lear has for giving up power is fear. Right. Uh, He's, he's afraid of continuing to have power. He's afraid of not being loved or only being loved because of power. The daughters want power and land and so on, mainly so that they can be safe from him. It's a very Hobbesian view in a way. 
uh, this idea that many human beings want power and largely they want it so that they'll feel safe from each other. Whereas the right way to live, the way that would actually make us all happy would be Cordelia's way, not power, but love. If we all loved each other and were and could be assured and confident in that love, we wouldn't have to worry about getting enough power so that nobody stuck a knife in our backs or something at night. And, and I think in a way it's a continuation of the symposium discussion about what love is. And it's the very obvious claim, but we see many people in this play not behaving as if it were true, that you should love a person for what they are in themselves and not, again, for power. And of course, it relates back to Lear's fear that he's only loved because he has power. That's right. You know, it's just striking to me. Um, like I said, I was, was reading this again last night and, you know, I was thinking about, um, cause I've constantly asked by people just because I do this podcast, like why, why do you think philosophers should be reading literature? <laughs> My immediate answer is like, uh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> of course, everybody should be reading literature, right? It's not just philosophers. <laughs> um, but you know, it is because I think that, um, you know, for, Philosophers, I mean, I'm sort of struck by the fact that so many of uh, the students that I encounter and graduate students and fellow philosophers, you know, they aren't really reading literature. I'm yeah. constantly struck by that. I'm especially struck by moral and political philosophers who aren't reading literature. I know. Um, but, you know, yeah. so much of philosophy right now and literary criticism, too, as I'm sure you know, is just it's all it's all about power. Right. Um, and all the questions are about how we can make things such that people have equal power, because obviously the way things are set up, people don't have equal power. And that's true. But there's sort of this like assumption that, hey, once we have political structures <laughs> and social structures in which everyone has equal access to power, then dot, dot, dot. And it's like, well, yeah. but then what? Because it turns out that just giving people power uh, isn't always a great idea, um, especially if they have a bad character. Um, and so, yes, it's important to pay attention to power dynamics and all of this, but just having freedom and power is certainly no guarantee that you're going to have a good life. It, can I read you this uh, quotation I have from Iris Murdoch, which speaks yes, to this? Uh, it's from an interview she did with Brian McGee. She says, philosophy and literature are both truth-seeking and truth-revealing activities. They are cognitive activities, explanations. Literature, like other arts, involves exploration, classification, discrimination, organized vision. Of course, good literature does not look like analysis, because what the imagination produces is sensuous, fused, reified, mysterious, ambiguous, and particular. Art is cognition in another mode. Think of how much thought, how much truth a Shakespeare play contains or a great novel. I just love yeah. that. And you can see, obviously, the relevance. Yeah. But I, I, and of course, we should remember as we read that too, Murdoch uh, was a philosopher, also a novelist. She worked in both That's areas. Right. So she knows what she's talking about That's here. That's right. Um, and it's her centenary this year as well. So we should all oh my gosh, I forgot more Murdoch. That. Um, so we're yes. going to have to leave it there. Uh, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Troy, for joining us. I've really enjoyed this. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please share it with friends, like our page on Facebook, 
follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a positive review, either on Facebook or on iTunes or on SoundCloud or wherever you can find us online. In general, the more happy listeners we have, the more likely it is that our endeavors on this podcast will continue well into the future. Do you have suggestions or recommendations for the podcast? Please let me know. I really love to hear from you, and I'm definitely open to specific requests, which you can leave on our Facebook page, or you can send to me directly at fray.gen at gmail.com.